Good morning. We are concluding our series on Exodus. We've been in this since January, and today, actually, we're going to look primarily at New Testament Scripture, uh, particularly in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, 9, and 10, that helps us to understand a little bit more about Exodus, uh, the tabernacle. As we look at the tabernacle, matter of fact, it's on your bulletin. The tabernacle is frequently mentioned. Matter of fact, uh, there are numerous chapters that are strictly devoted to understanding the tabernacle and what the tabernacle was about. Now, today, I would tell you this. One of the things that's so important about us understanding the tabernacle is that it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. A picture of heaven, the book of Hebrews tells us, and a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think it's a very powerful analogy. It's a very powerful foreshadowing picture. Now, you hear me use that term foreshadowing uh, frequently, and I want to explain what that means to you again. Foreshadowing, particularly you even see it in, in modern literature. If you're reading a book or if you're watching a movie, there are hints that are given to you of how things might turn out. There are hints given to you of hope when things look disparate and when things look fatal. There, is, there are hints that are given to you of, hey, this is how things might end up happening. There is hope. And the foreshadowing picture in the Old Testament is mankind who had sinned and had put enmity between him and God the Father. God makes a way. He, he gives them a way where they might be able to communicate and have fellowship with him. But it's a pretty elaborate process in the Old Testament. But here through the tabernacle, it's the way that they're going to have their sins forgiven. It's the way that they're going to understand who a holy God is. It's the way that they're understanding how they're going to be a different people. And it's also a foreshadowing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We understand foreshadowing today. Uh, I had a chance several years ago to go to New York and see the Statue of Liberty. And I thought about all the immigrants who were coming in and they would foresee, they would see that statue. And it was a foreshadowing of what they had hoped the United States of America would be. Because they had, uh, they had the statue there with, matter of fact, it has a torch and then bearing a tablet of the law and scripted on it is the declaration, the date of the Declaration of Independence. And then there's a broken chain at, at Lady, at her feet there at the Statue of Liberty's feet. And it's that picture of there's law and there's freedom. The chains have been broken. And so it's a foreshadowing of what's to come. When I got engaged with my wife, and maybe you did something like this, when you were engaged, uh, I took her to a special spot, and then I gave her a ring that was a foreshadowing of our relationship to come, of my commitment to her. And so we still use these symbols, and the Bible uses them quite frankly. Quite, quite frequently, but none are any stronger, in my personal opinion, than the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to start with the first verse. And before we do that, I want to give you the three main points that I hope you'll connect with here today. And the three points are simply this for, for the sermon. God has a clear and specific way for us to come into relationship with him. That's number one. God has a clear and specific way for us to come into relationship with him. Number two, that relationship does not happen without sacrifice and the shedding of blood. The Bible tells us that in Leviticus 17, 11, and then again in Hebrews 9, 22. Today, that relationship is offered us through the great high priest and mediator, 
Jesus Christ. So you see, God has a clear and specific way for us to come into relationship with him today, and certainly in the Old Testament. It was very specific. It was very clear. Number two, that relationship does not happen without the sacrifice and the shedding of blood. The Bible says that the life is in the blood. In, in, in uh, Leviticus chapter 17, it tells us that, and that atonement must be made through blood. And number three, today the relationship is offered to us through the great high priest and mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's read Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Now, the point in which we are saying this, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy place in the true tent or the tabernacle. Your translation might use the word. That's that, that when you see that word true tent, uh, when you see that word uh, holy place, when you see that word tabernacle, it's there. That word tabernacle means this. It means to dwell with, that God was dwelling with his people. And it says that the Lord set it up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to offer something. In other words, he's saying the priest had to offer a sacrifice for himself as well before he could the people. And now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as, now get this, verse 5. I want you to see this one very clearly. Verse 5, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So what is the law? What is the tabernacle? What are the priests? They serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So in other words, this is not only a copy, or if you want to word, use the word imitation of the heavenly abode of God, it is also a foreshadowing of what is to come. For when Moses was about to wreck the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was given to you here. And so he makes it very clear that was shown to you on the mountain. Now we're going to stop right there for just a moment because we see some things that are occurring and I want to just start over here because you're wondering what some of these items are. Now, first of all, we have the Ark of the Covenant and upon the Ark of the Covenant, we have what is called what? What is this called on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat. Now, we just read in Hebrews 8 that this is a foreshadowing that it is a copy of heaven, okay? These are the cherubim, and we know from Scripture that the cherubim surround God upon his throne. So if you can picture, this is, again, to be a copy, an imitation of heaven. So the mercy seat, is where the dwelling presence, the glory, the full glory of God would come. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not omnipresent. We believe that God's omnipresent, which means that God is around everything. But the best way to understand that, a crude analogy, would be the sun. We know the sun is always present. But if we get too close to the sun, it will consume us. The purity and the power and the significance of the sun and the power of the sun and the radiation of the sun would destroy us. That's a, that's a crude way of understanding the presence of God. We understand his presence, but his full presence, his full glory came and resided amongst the people. And they could not look upon it. We know Moses could not fully look upon even the glory of God. And so he's surrounded here. The, the full presence is surrounded by the cherubim here on the mercy seat. And this is also symbolic of Christ. We read a while ago that he is seated at the right-hand throne of the Father. He's seated at the throne before the Father. And then, so this is the mercy seat. 
And then the Ark of the Covenant, uh, it was the most uh, holy and sacred relic that the people had at that time. Uh, matter of fact, initially they were never even allowed to see it. Later on, we see it going before them uh, in battle. And so this became kind of the national figure of the people of Israel, all right? Uh, today we have a flag, an American flag. They didn't really have a flag, uh, a Jewish flag back then, but many of the nationalities and many of the people groups would always have some kind of symbol. We know the Roman Empire had the eagle, uh, but the, this was the Ark of the Covenant was kind of the picture, kind of the symbol uh, of, of, uh, of the nation of Israel at that time. Now, does anybody know, get, tell me what one of the items any of the items, matter of fact, you can tell me what any of the items were that were located inside the Ark of the Covenant. What was it? Ten Commandments. Okay, the first one, the Ten Commandments, the law, which was also called the testimony. Called the testimony. You'll see it referred to that in, in Scripture in the Old Testament as the testimony. So the Ten Commandments, the law. Do you realize this is the first written Scripture that the people of God ever had? There was no Old Testament before this. And who wrote this? God. Okay, so God engraven these images uh, that we have right here. These images called the Ten Commandments, the testimony of God, that were to give the people the way to live. This is how I want you to be a holy people. This is how I want you to live out your life. These are the boundary markers for you to understand what it means to live according uh, to my glory. And so, those were the first things that were in, in, this is the first item that was in the box. Now, what was another item? Aaron's rod, Aaron's rod, Aaron's staff. Now, his staff would have been bigger than this, but I couldn't fit it in the box, okay? So, Aaron's staff. Now, what's interesting about this is Aaron has been called, Moses, of course, is leading the people, but now Aaron has become the high priest. And if you went back and read in Numbers chapter 16 and 17, you would see a particular story. After Korah's rebellion and after they, uh, they're all taken care of, some of the people are still complaining. They're going, why does Aaron get to be the high priest? I mean, we got Moses, we got Aaron. There seems like there's some nepotism going on here. He's the high priest. He's the prophet. He's the leader. I mean, they got this whole thing covered. But God had said Aaron would be the high priest, and then his sons were priests underneath him. And so there began, uh, they began to murmur and grumble, and God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, take a, I want you to take a staff from each leader of each tribe, and from the tribe of Levi, take Aaron's staff, and I want you to go, and I want you to put it uh, before the, t- the tabernacle, and I want you to lay those rods, and in the morning I want you to come back. And for each rod or each staff, I want you to write the name of the leader of that tribe. And so that's what they did. They wrote the name of the leader of each tribe. And on Levi's tribe, Aaron had his name written. They put that before the tabernacle of God. The next morning they came back, and Aaron's had sprouted. And not only that, it was blooming with almonds, fully developed almonds. And so it was a picture that Aaron is the one that I've chosen. So this was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's still one final element. Does anybody know what it is? The jar of manna. He said, I want you to take a golden jar, and I want you to place it in the tabernacle, and I want you to put manna in it. Now, manna was the substance that God provided for the nation of Israel while they were on their journey through the, de- through the desert and through the wilderness. For 40 years, they received manna. As a matter of fact, it wasn't soon after the Red Sea where they were needing food and water, and they began to complain. And Moses went, and he placed his face before God and said, Oh, God, what do I do? And he said, Tomorrow there will be 
there will be substance upon the ground, and you will be able to pick it up. And so it was manna, and the word manna in Hebrew literally means what is it? That's what it is. So there, what is it was all over the ground, okay? And so they took that man and, and he said, I want you to take some of that man and I want you to put it, and they sealed it probably hermetically as possible, uh, into this jar. And it was to be a reminder that God has sustained them with their physical needs throughout that journey, throughout those 40 years. So these are the holy relics, so to speak, in the Ark of the Covenant that tell the story of the nation of Israel. Now, we couldn't do it because you wouldn't be able to see over there, but right over here is the veil, and the veil was in between the Ark of the Covenant and the rest of the furnishings in the tabernacle. And of course, only the high priest could go through the veil once a year, and we'll read about that in just a moment. And a while ago, we, uh, we were singing a song uh, about you tore the veil because the veil, the veil uh, was one piece, and it, it blocked anyone from the presence of God except the high priest who would go in with his sacrifice. He'd have to offer sacrifice for himself and then a sacrifice for, on behalf of the nation of God. And they would go behind the veil at that point, Aaron would, and he would offer the great high priest's sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on behalf of the people. And so this veil separated the presence of God, the glory of God, from the people and their sin, but from, from his presence. Again, this is a picture, a copy of what it would look like in heaven. Now, before, you, before you'd go in that veil, the next piece would be this altar of incense. And there was a certain group of incense, a certain group of spices and herbs that went together that created this special incense that God had commanded that they use. And it was to be offered as a sweet smelling aroma. Paul talks about it, gives an allusion to this, a sweet smelling savor, a sweet smelling uh, uh, offering that's given to God Almighty. And it was offered uh, to God. And that was a picture of the altar of incense that the priest would come and give as well. Next, we have the lampstand, the golden lampstand. As a matter of fact, the nation of Israel and many Jews still use the menorah today is what we call it, isn't it? The menorah. And they use it during Hanukkah, during our Christmas time. And this had olive oil placed in it, and it was lit 24 hours a day. They had olive oil that would burn. The priest would come in and replace it. And it was a picture of the light, the light of God and the illumination that was given to the nation of Israel so that when they came in here, there's a light. We are to be a light to all the nations. Do you realize that's why God selected them, to be a light to all nations, so that all nations, all people might know who Yahweh God is. And so there was the the lampstand. Then also there was the table of presents or the table of showbread, which actually had bread on it. And um, so I'll put some bread on it here. And the showbread was for, uh, to, to remind the nation, there were 12 of them, there were two stacks of six, and it was to show them that the presence of God was always there. He was always with them and that he would spiritually nurture them. And so the table in each tribe is represented that God will supply for each tribe. And it was called the table of presence or the, ta- the showbread, the table of showbread that was there for them. And uh, then next is later. Now, this, that would have been inside the first compartment of the tabernacle. And again, we know if the second part was the Holy of Holies that they didn't go into except for the high priest once a year. But before you got in, there was the laver. Um, we get our term 
the Latin term laver, laver, lavatory we get. And it was a place where the priests would come and would clean their hands and their feet before they would walk into the tabernacle. So they had to be cleansed. Now, they didn't understand back then uh, the way we understand germs and sanitation today. And it's really re- quite remarkable if you go back to the book of Leviticus, all the, all the steps that they had to go through when it, it, they are at that time in history have no clue about sanitation, no clue uh, about germs and bacteria, but they were to wash thoroughly their hands and their feet before they were to proceed. Now, a lot of that was largely symbolic too, but we serve a God who not only can use his symbolism, but always can take his symbolism and use it for our good and for our health. And that's certainly what was applying. You think about all those animals that were sacrificed had they not washed, which was what happened right before they got there. What happened right before is where they would offer the sacrifice. This was the bronze altar of sacrifice. Sacrifices were given on behalf of the people. What would happen would be a person would come, you would come to the gate and you would receive the animal. The priest would receive the animal from you and he would take it here and he would offer it on your behalf for forgiveness of your sins. There were other offerings that were given here too, but the most significant one was obviously the sacrifice uh, of an unblemished animal that was offered on behalf of your sins. There were even some that were offered on behalf of your unknowing sins, sins that you might not even be aware of. And so that was the altar of sacrifice. And then last we come to the gate. There was only one gate into the tabernacle. There was only one way into the tabernacle, and it was through this gate. This is where the priests would meet you. And this is how you would come in, through this gate. And it was the one and only other place. You couldn't come in any in any other direction but right through here, the gate. Now, I want us to read the rest of our scripture, and hopefully we'll have a little bit better understanding as we read the text. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship, an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence is called the holy place. That's what we just talked about, this place right here. And again, that's everything uh, this side right here, except for, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. So this is the holy place where we have the altar of incense, we have the, the lampstand, and we have the table of showbread here. And the author of Hebrews continues and says, Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, or we often hear it called the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and of the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold holding the manna and Aaron's staff and the tablets of the covenant or the Ten Commandments, as we often call it. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, of these things we cannot speak in detail. <laughs> the, the preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing the rituals and duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement of gifts and sacrifices are offered and cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and the various washings and regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. And when when Christ appeared 
as the high priest of good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, speaking of, the, speaking of him, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons and of ashes of heifers sanctify for purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who is the perfect and the sinless sacrifice, through the eternal spirit in himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serving the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance since a death occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I want to read this with you here. Now in verse, it continues on for verse 17. Let's go to verse 18. For it takes a death since it will not force as long as the one has made it is alive. So what is he saying there? He's saying that uh, if it's not a perfect sacrifice, and if it's only made by us, it has to be done over and over again. Therefore, not even the first co- covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop and sprinkled both uh, the book itself and and all the people. So in other words, that blood would, they, they would take the blood, the priest would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the ornaments, particularly when he came to Yom Kippur. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat for himself and then on behalf of the people. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels in the worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the verse you heard me quote earlier. 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so in other words, here on earth, it's sprinkled and it's covered and it's forgiven by the blood of the lamb. But he said, these are simply copies. These are temporary elements foreshadowing, giving us a picture of the heavenly realm. For Christ has entered not in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's saying, look, that was done as a picture of understanding how forgiveness operates and how forgiveness was granted. But this is just a copy. This is just a shadow. And now Christ has gone to heaven and he's made it pure. He's purified us. He's purified our sins on our behalf. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. In other words, he doesn't have to come again and again and again as the high high priest who enters the heavenly places through the, the year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The pure and perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, offers himself once and for all. Never again will sacrifices have to be made because of what Christ Jesus has done. In verse 27, and just as is appointed for man to die once, and then the judgment, after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. Amen. Coming on, we see chapter 10 
And let's read this last section, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that opened us up through the curtain, and the curtain is his flesh. You see that right there? It says the curtain is his flesh. His flesh was the curtain, was the, was the veil that blocked us from the holiness of God, that blocked mankind except for the high priest once a year. But the curtain has been rent, the Bible tells us. When Jesus died, the curtain tore from the top to the bottom. And the Bible tells us, and since then, since we have confidence to enter into the holy place of Jesus by the new and living way that opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of hope without wavering, for he has promised his faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some the habit, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And by the way, that last one, he's talking about the assembly, the ecclesia. He's talking about the modern day church, that we are to come together and worship, not to forsake ourselves as some do, but come together and to stir one another, to encourage one another. And there's the picture of the gospel given 3,000 years ago. Right here, we see God had them produce a temple, a tabernacle, which would go with them for about 400 years and eventually would become the temple that Solomon would, would build. And it, it looked much like this, except it was more elaborate. And so we understand the tabernacle. Now let's walk back through it with our eyes, with the eyes of the gospel. Where do we start? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is the gate. He's very specific, very clear. He doesn't say there are multiple ways. This, is, this flies in the face of pluralism or syncretism where people say, well, yeah, I believe in Christianity, but I also believe there are a lot of other ways. There are a lot of other things. As long as you're really good, that's not what the Bible says. He, Jesus says, I am the way, the way. I am the gate. He is the only way. And so this gate right here now, we enter in through Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice. This is the only way. There's not another way in to the throne room of God. There's not another way to salvation. It must come through the gate. And Jesus provides our way through the gate. We come to this altar. And why are we allowed to come through the gate? Because Jesus has paid the price. He has given the sacrifice once and for all. He died on Calvary because the Bible said there could be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, life is in the blood. There must be atonement for sins. So Jesus shed his perfect and sinless blood on the altar of the cross so that we might know forgiveness all who would call upon him might be saved and forgiven. The foreshadowing was the altar that was done by animals, that was given by a blemish animal or a lamb or a goat. Or, or For the poor, it might even have been another animal sometimes. But Jesus said, hey, once and for all, I give myself. No longer will this crude copy of heaven, no longer will this crude copy of sacrifice be offered. For I will do it once and for all. I am the perfect and holy sacrifice. So I offer myself. And then what happens? Once we have trusted Christ, once we recognize he's the gate, once we've received his sacrificial uh, gift to us, 
His grace given to us, what are we to do? We are to be baptized. We are to be baptized by holy water, by water, and I say holy water, water that is holy because God deems it in the sense of our baptism as holy, but we, it's symbolic. Just as this was symbolic, it had, again, it had, uh, though they didn't understand, it had sanitation effects, but it was a picture of them becoming clean before they walk in. Baptism is the picture that our sins have been forgiven. They've been washed away because of the sacrifice and because of the grace given to us by Jesus Christ. Then we come, and the Holy Spirit gives us illumination. It gives us light. It gives us revelation to understand the Word of God, to help us to live our life and power through the Holy Spirit as we have engaged and as we have accepted the grace and the forgiveness of God. And then we feed at the table. Today, we will have a time of communion where we will receive of the bread and the cup and we'll receive there that God will sustain us just as he sustained in the Old Testament through the manna. He sustains us today through the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Jesus makes it very clear. You know what's interesting to me? You know, what the, where was Jesus born? It's not a trick question. Bethlehem, that's right. Not a trick. I'm not trying to trick you. Bethlehem. Does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. Jesus becomes our house of bread and spiritually nurtures us. And then we come to the altar of incense, where this incense was to be a sweet-smelling savor and aroma that would go up to God Almighty. Today, The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 that our praises and our worship and our prayer are an offering of God as we give thanksgiving. So when we come and we pray, when we sing, when we worship, we're offering up incense to God. We're giving him our praise and our worship that are sweet-smelling savor to him through Jesus Christ, our mediator. And then we read earlier that Jesus... His body, representing the curtain, has torn the veil. At the crucifixion, we know from the gospel that the the veil was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And now we have access to the throne of God. Why? Because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father, ever interceding for you and for me. He is our mediator. He is our high priest. He has given us salvation. He has given us life. He has secured our place before God Almighty. What a beautiful picture that the gospel represents. What a beautiful picture that the tabernacle represents, that Jesus has fulfilled the tabernacle. He is the tabernacle. He has given us life. I was reading the story by Ernest Gordon, who was a POW. uh, He was a POW in World War II and had been captured by the Japanese in Thailand. And he was in that POW prison camp and why I was there and went through a lot of torture and uh, just brutally, uh, just br- utmost brutality that he experienced. But he told the day of one day where at the end of the day they had been working and they picked all the equipment up. And when the guards picked the equipment up, they reported to one of the guards that one of the shovels were missing, which was a huge deal because if a shovel was missing, that might be an instrument that they would use to all tunnel out of the camp. And so the head guard came and he began to yell and scream and to uh, just completely go ballistic on all of the POW prisoners saying, who stole it? 
come forward, come forward. And no one would come forward. And so finally he said, okay, then all die, all die. So he lifted his rifle, he pointed it at the first man and he clicked and he started to pull the trigger and someone else down the line stepped forward. One of the soldiers stepped forward and said, I did it. And everyone looked at him. And so that guard went over and he unmercifully beat that man until he could not even move. And then he took the barrel of his rifle and he hit him over the head. And it was obvious that he had killed him. And he continued to punish him even after that. And then everyone went back to their barracks. And then they found out the next day that, uh, in fact, the shovel was there. The man who had counted had miscalculated. Nothing was gone. The man who had stepped forward was innocent. And the blood that streamed down his face, the life that he, that he gave, he gave innocently on behalf of the rest so that they might live, even though he was not guilty. That's the picture of what Christ Jesus has done for you and for me. Do you see it today? Do you see how God, none of this has been by an accident. None of this was just on a whim. None of this was just God uh, thinking, here's here's a good way we can roll things out. It was always meant to be a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice, of the ultimate gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know him today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of how, God, you have incorporated the Old Testament to be a picture of the gospel for us to to look back and see. Though they could not have understood it then, all all they knew was that they must do it specifically and exactly as you had prescribed. But then, Lord, you came through the fullness of your Son and made a way for us that all who would believe in your sacrifice, all who would put our hope and our trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that he's not a way, he's not a type of way, but he is the way, the truth, and the life, that we might know forgiveness of sins, that we might experience the grace and the love of God Almighty. And Lord, if there's one today that has not experienced that grace, has not experienced the gospel, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit now that we might experience you in your fullness. We thank you for this time and we thank you for this opportunity. In the name of Jesus, we pray.